Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Allen. I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Seth Jason, James Early, and Shannon Zimmerman. Guys, good to see you. Good to see you, Chris. Hello, Chris. On today's show, Alan Greenspan admits to being 30% wrong, Amazon finds a new target, and KFC cooks up Homer Simpson's dream sandwich. Plus, best-selling author Roger Lowenstein on the future of Wall Street, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks that are on our radar. But we begin with some big numbers from the world of retail. Guys, double-digit same-store sales increases for many stores in March and the biggest monthly sales increase in more than a decade. Now, Shannon, I know we had weak comparables from a year ago, right. and an early Easter helped juice the numbers, but what was your takeaway for investors? Yeah, well, the Easter Bunny's early arrival is a, is a big uh, part of this. You know, Sales that would typically have occurred in April occurred in March. Still, broad-based gains across the spectrum. Uh, discounted shops like Kohl's and Ross, uh, they did well, but then so did upscale retailers like Nordstrom and Neiman Marcus. Uh, Wet Seal, a, a shop that's uh, near and dear to all our hearts here on, on the radio show. Uh, also we all look a, great in yeah. Wet Seal. <laughs> great, at a great Every month. week I'm there. So that's good news uh, for our consumer-led economy. But did you know, Chris, that 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 figure that gets reported backs out Walmart? Why does it back out Walmart? Well, because it's so huge that it would skew the the, the results. And, and in fact, if you put it back in, uh, the same store sales year over year were actually down. So as we were talking about last week, when things are going well for Walmart, that's probably not a good sign for the overall economy. And when things are going poorly, as they seem to be, if you look at the, the their same store sales, uh, that probably is a good sign for the uh, economy. That James? is an interesting point about Walmart. I mean, they have not been doing as well same store sales wise. You know, people have been trading up, but Walmart itself is is now, according to a Wall Street Journal article, sort of betting against the U.S. economy. Economy. They're, they're trying to position themselves as, get this, a low price leader. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow, basically that is a change. Expecting a double dip and, and, and thinking that people are going to flock to them instead of the dollar stores. Seth, what I, do you think? I can explain it all. The Easter shift is important. Uh, it's also that Armageddon comparable. Last year, I mean, think of it in sim- terms of simple math. If, if a company did 15% worse last year and they do 15% better this year, uh, they're not back to where they were in 2008 still in the hole. yet. Yep. Exactly. I, I did a little digging on this. I actually listened to some of these calls to take a look the at conference the calls? numbers. Yeah, well, the, the earnings calls, they're pre-recorded at the numbers behind the numbers. And what I'm finding out here, at least I was five for five in the ones I managed to get through, this is really boring, <laughs> is, that, is that a lot of these companies, and, and American Eagle is one of them, so is Abercrombie, so is Zoomies, are reporting that average retail unit prices, in other words, the average price of something they sell is down. And that's not just because they happen to be selling a mixture of lower priced goods, but that they're actually charging less for the stuff. So it suggests that a lot of companies are putting a lot of stuff on sales, and that may have been what brought people in. And this is not just at American Eagle, Zoomies, Abercrombie. Gap did not say that this is what happened, but they did say they will no longer report information, which would let us judge whether this is the case. Nordstrom, a high-end retailer, right? You'd expect them maybe to be able to sell more at full price. Nope, average ticket decreased at Nordstrom. Investors need to really watch this because if they cannot make up in volume what they are losing by selling stuff cheaper, uh, those stocks are, are going to look overpriced real quick. Guys, on a recent show, we talked about how Lehman had temporarily removed more than $50 billion in debt from its balance sheet through a legal accounting maneuver called Repo 105. Legal but sleazy. Can we can we just make that clear? You can make that clear. Okay. Sleagal. Well, it, it, it turns out that uh, Lehman has company. 
The Wall Street Journal reported that 18 banks, including Goldman, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, and Citigroup, hid risk by temporarily lowering their debt just before reporting it to the public. James Early, what was your take on this? Chris, I think... Uh, you bank, were shocked, weren't you? I, I was totally shocked. I would never have expected <laughs> More this, than but, one but sleazy bank. Bank of America spokesman's quote to the Wall Street Journal reporter says it all. Dot, dot, dot. Our policies are consistent with all applicable accounting and legal requirements. And, and that's kind of the point is, is whether this was Repo 105 or other things, these things weren't technically illegal, but they were clearly unsportsmanlike. I mean, they were specifically designed to mislead investors. If I have $100 of debt mid-quarter, I bring it down to $58 at the end of the quarter and it bounces back up to 100 again. That's sort of false advertising. And, and, it, and, it's, and let's be clear. We're not talking about it bounces back to 100 because you have to by the middle of next quarter. We're talking about hiding it for a week or so so people can't see it, then getting right back to it, right? Correct. This is just accounting window dressing. It, it may be okay, but some things... I guess like riding a motorcycle in Speedos, which I saw recently, oh. is legal, but you just don't do it, you know? <laughs> that really should be against the law. Alan Greenspan testified before Congress this week and said that over the course of his career, he was, quote, 70% right and 30% wrong. So guys, let's just go around the table and fill in the blanks. Uh, what do you think? Alan Greenspan is 70% blank and 30% blank. Shannon? 70% country, 30% rock and roll. <laughs> James? 70% Vasset Hound, 30% Sharpay. <laughs> Seth Jason? Alan Greenspan? Oh, 70% full of himself and 30% even more full of himself. I, I have to be a little serious about this. This is a ridiculous thing to say because it, think about it in terms of Russian roulette, right? You load a revolver oh. up and you leave only one uh, or you leave one shell in there. So you got a one out of six chance uh, mm -hmm. of shooting your brains out. It doesn't matter if you're going to be right most of the time because the one time you're wrong, a horrible, horrible thing happens. Okay? So, so taking that analogy one step further, it sounds like you're saying that Alan Greenspan shot the U.S. economy in the head. Uh, not entirely by himself, but he had a much greater role in it than he would like to admit. Does he need to take a page out of Tiger Woods' rehabilitation playbook? Like maybe, you know, shoot a commercial where, you know, his, his deceased father is, is talking to him, that sort of thing? No, but he needs to take a page out of the previous part of Tiger Woods' playbook because that would be a lot more interesting for all of us. But there is some... <laughs> sim that really would be. That'd be if, amazing. Alan, if anyone has film of Alan Greenspan out there with Denny's waitresses, send it to us. It might boost his reputation. And, and Andrea Mitchell, too, of course. Motley Fool Money at Fool.com. Keep those photos and emails coming. In other Fed chief news, some praise for the way the Fed chief and other policymakers handled the financial crisis. Quote, the world was spared an even worse cataclysm that could have rivaled or surpassed the Great Depression. Who said that? That praise coming from none other than the Fed chief himself, Ben Bernanke. All right. But so he said he did a good <laughs> job? Self-praise? Yeah, a little bit of self-praise. A little bit of self-praise. Did he so, get to set his own pay? I, <laughs> that'd be great, wouldn't it? I mean, obviously we will never know uh, how bad things could have gotten in the abstract, um, but to what extent does Bernanke legitimately deserve credit here? I think he d does deserve some some credit. Although, you know, in 2008, he was telling us that the mortgage crisis was all about subprime and that it was contained. Boy, was that ever wrong. <laughs> yeah. But then the, the Fed, under his guidance, was very aggressive and very bold in the role that it played uh, to, to stave off complete financial collapse. So I think that he, he does deserve some credit because I don't think that that would have happened had, say, Alan Greenspan still been the Fed chair. 
Yeah, I would. I would not have wanted to have been to be Bernanke. I mean, you have to give him some credit. He, he yeah. took a lot of heat. I mean, everybody's sort of a Monday morning quarterback when it comes to the economy, and he did what he thought was best. So yeah, he he made the best of a tough situation. Yeah, I we'll never know, but, but I think he he eventually did the right thing, and uh, so we'll give him a lot of heck. But it's not so bad. All right, coming up, the week in Apple and KFC gets ready to unveil nothing less than the greatest sandwich in the history of food. <laughs> Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in the studio with Seth Jason, James Early, and Shannon Zirin as we break down some of the headlines from the week. China is moving toward letting its currency rise against the dollar. According to reports, China would gradually increase the yuan's value up to 3% a year, a move that would make Chinese exports more expensive. Shannon, is that a good thing for investors? Uh, well, this is an interesting story, of course, because uh, uh, little Timmy Geithner has been under a lot of pressure to declare officially that uh, China is a currency manipulator. Which is that really a debate? Obviously, you know, if you don't let your your currency float and it hasn't been revalued in two years, that's a that's a form of currency manipulation. So three percent float, uh, well, that's I guess that's something. And of course, the reason they 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 want a devalued currency is so that their exports will be remarkably cheap. The problem for China is that they're also trying to cultivate a service economy, a middle class economy, and that cannot be sustained by uh, uh, cheap exports alone. Yeah, and remember the, the thing with, with having a cheap currency is, is maybe it's great for exports, but it's not very good if your people want to buy stuff from from other countries. Exactly, and, and that's what China wants. Another problem too is that by keeping the currency so low, it's sort of like Ch- China's been running this currency car at, at a very high RPM. In other words, if if the economy suffers and exports actually fall, people just don't want to buy as much from China. They don't really have much gas left to, to do anything else. But maybe it's a Toyota, and so <laughs> <laughs> it just keeps going and going. Can, can I can I ask the obvious question? Maybe uh, is this just a lot of static based on uh, a misunderstanding? I think that it seems to me that there's a lot of political grandstanding here along the lines of if we can get just get those darn Chinese to quit cheating on their currency, then we'll get those manufacturing jobs back. Yes, that, I, that's, that's absolute nonsense. And everybody out there, be careful what you ask for, because for most people, more expensive goods from China are going to hurt you more. <laughs> that, 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 that's right. There is grandstanding, and there's a principle involved, and I think there's a lot of attention that's being paid to the principle. The practical impact is going to be negligible in the near term. And remember, they're only saying a 3% uh, uh, float. So you know that is, wouldn't have a big impact anyway. This week in Apple, the iPad is up and running. Steve Jobs implied that Apple has sold at least 7 million iPhones in March. And the company also unveiled its new iAd platform, which will compete with Google's ad platform. Shannon, there's a lot there. Uh, what was your big takeaway from Apple? Well, there's no there's no um, zealot like a recent convert, and I got an iPhone <laughs> in December, and I love it. Uh, so I, I was a little bit disappointed though because the the hype was that they were going to talk about some features that were baked into the the new OS for the iPhone that's going to come out in a few months. And th- there wasn't a lot of attention paid to that in terms of the the coverage. the The iAd network is kind of interesting to me because it's another way that Apple's going to get in the face of Google. Google's already already pushing back, but Steve Jobs thinks that the way people interact with their mobile devices is fundamentally different th- from the way that they interact with their desktops and the kind of uh, ad placement, that text-based ad placement that Google specializes in, he thinks is not the way it's going to go on the on the mobile devices. Baking those ads into the apps uh, is, a, is a new opportunity for them to build out the ecosystem and uh, generate some revenue. And, and now you you see why Google worked so hard to invent by buying its own phone operating system to try and and stem this because yeah. they they knew where yeah. this was headed. 
So is is that really Apple's long-term strategy? Is they're going to move into the ad market and take on Google? I, I think that they have they are still dealing and are kind of freaked out by how, how successful uh, the App Store has been for them. And so yeah, this is another way of ringing out some additional bucks and motivating uh, developers to, to work with them because they're going to be sharing that revenue uh, throughout the ecosystem. All right, exit question. On a scale of 1 to 10, with the iPhone being a 10 in terms of success and Apple TV being a one, uh, where do you think the iPad will be a year from now? Well, and Apple TV is is a, a one for now. I mean, they, they they claim it's a hobby, but they're doing a lot of work behind the scenes. Like I said, I, I am. So you haven't given up on Apple TV? I got <laughs> no, it. Oh no, uh, I don't know. It's 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 not as elegant looking as I thought it would be. And I, I for now it's like a three point five. But oh, two see, years from now, I thought it was very very pretty. Somebody had one at work, and I played with it and everything. I I thought it was clunky to use. You can't double thumb it, and I still couldn't figure out what you would do with it, really, that you wouldn't do with an iPhone. Would I, you, I, I would give it a higher rating than that, though. I'd probably say it's going to be a four or five min. You, you were making the point, just one, one thing to say, you were making the point earlier that uh, it's heavy. and, and it, It's a, it's not really, it's a pound and a half or something, but when you pick it up, it feels heavier than it, than it should. That's also true of the MacBooks, the early MacBooks. and they, they, I don't know why they're that heavy, but I have one from 2006. and well, it, You, you probably like have an awful lot of battery in there to get that much life. Yeah. James Early? As I've intimated earlier, I'm just waiting until they make an iPad that you can actually flip up to reveal a keyboard underneath, and I think they should call it a laptop. <laughs> <laughs> they would get credit for inventing it. Ebooks are coming to a bricks and mortar retailer near you. Target is going to start carrying Amazon's Kindle later this month, and Best Buy will be carrying Barnes and Noble's unfortunately named Nook e reader. Uh, Seth, you're a Kindle guy. Um, are you excited about this? No, I don't think it really moves the needle much. I figure a few people will pick them up, but for the most part, I, people don't go to Target really to browse the latest in technology. So I think this this has a pretty small uh, addition to sales. But Amazon and Target have been tight for a while. Amazon provides Target's uh, web front end for now. So it's not surprising, but I don't think it changes much. But don't you think that th- these devices in particular, e-readers, are the type of thing that um, a whole cross-section of people are not going to buy into unless they actually get the chance to, you know, test drive them a oh, little bit. Oh, I think bit. that's true, but I don't think they're going to find them at Target. Remember, Target is a giant store where people like me go to buy eight months worth of toilet paper at a <laughs> shot, so they're not necessarily looking to buy to buy uh, an e-reader there. Where do you store all that TV? <laughs> In the basement with other things. Some crushing news for all you Bebo fans. <laughs> Both of you. <laughs> AOL said this. AOL said this week it was considering selling or shutting down Bebo, prompting some of us to ask, "What the hell is Bebo?" <laughs> some. It's all a, of us. Nobody knew what it was. <laughs> it's a social networking site that AOL bought two years ago. Forget this. Eight hundred fifty million dollars. And how many users did it have about then? Yeah. Several. And we're not making this up. We came in today. We, we, our, our producer, Mac, had this on the docket, and we all asked, what is Bebo <laughs> in the first place? We, we had not heard of it. And then I still thought it was a kid's social networking site, like that Penguin one. It, this is one for adults. It sounds kind of kiddie, yeah. I've got it on my screen right here, and there's this horrible game, crazy ambulance race that <laughs> looks like it looks like something from 1985. I can't understand why so, these people would have lost nearly, you know, so all the work I put into my there. Bebo profile is out the window now. <laughs> so you're feeling pretty good, Seth, about your, your chances for survival in a post-Bebo world? Wow. <laughs> yeah, but what about the 16 people who are actually in that social network? And I think they're all pictured on the on the front page of the website. But well, they bought it for $800 and something million, dollars, right? Well, $850 should, million. Yeah. Should we try to be somewhat serious about this for a second, which is that this this is not unusual. It, it happened. It's happened with the GeoCities and the 
the GeoCities. How old am I? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's happened with search engines, with other social networks. And right now, P Facebook is in this position where people just talk about how much it's worth, but there's nobody really knows if it makes any money or anything. If, if Facebook is in exactly this position at some point, it, people will act surprised and there's no reason they should be. But don't you think at some point AOL, a couple of years ago when they were in the position to buy Bebo, just said to themselves, this is our only chance oh, to yeah. get into social networking? Yep. Oh, this was obviously made in some kind of a panic. But why, what, why are you panicking? You got to buy one of these. I mean, shareholders could, wouldn't have cared if they didn't buy this thing. And they could have created their own for, you know, sunk costs. Yeah. <laughs> According to an interactive Harris survey of 29,000 Americans, Berkshire Hathaway and Johnson & Johnson have the best corporate reputations. Also in the top 10, Google, 3M, Intel, and Microsoft. Nine of the bottom 10 companies were recipients of government bailout money. Uh, guys, which companies top your best reputation list? I like a company called Genuine Parts. They have the Napa Auto brand, some other miscellaneous stuff. It's a, kind of a boring company, but it's well run. But let me say this. I looked at the fine print of this Harris survey, and they, they surveyed 29,000 random people. And one of the, the, the categories that they bake into this amalgam, it looks like, is workplace environment. So I guess I'm wondering how many of these random people, first of all, are familiar with, with a company like Berkshire Hathaway to begin with, let alone feel qualified to rate like it's, its workplace environment? Well, yeah. I mean, in, with Berkshire, you're talking about, you know, obviously lots of different companies, everything from, you know, Geico Insurance to Seize Candy. So come on, Seize Candy? That's got to be a, a pretty awesome <laughs> place, place to, to work. work. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And finally, it's one small step for man, one giant leap for Homer Simpson. Next week, KFC will begin selling the Double Down Sandwich. They Bacon, call it a Double Down? <laughs> a double Down oh, Sandwich. Man. Bacon and cheese sandwiched between two pieces of fried chicken. Yes, the fried chicken is the bread. Any takers? Uh, absolutely. I'm with Homer Simpson. I, I, it sounds delicious. You to want me. to test drive it next would, week? Yeah, let's go after the show. Steve, sure any chance good. you're 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 going to join me and Shannon uh, next week? KFC Double Down Sandwich. It does sound delicious, but I may have to pass on this one. Uh, you know what? You know what? I'm just going to call you out right now. I know that you really want to do this. <laughs> I know you want to do this, but you're on a new diet. I am, and that's why you're walking away. That's the truth. What if? What if Shannon and I promise? We won't tell your lovely new wife. Sold. I'm in. <laughs> All right. The guys will be back later in the show to share some of the stocks that are on their radar. But up next, best-selling author Roger Lowenstein joins me to talk about his latest book, The End of Wall Street. You know, well, I'm a chicken fried. A cold beer on a Friday night. A pair of jeans that fit just right. And a radio Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Roger Lowenstein is a Bloomberg columnist and a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. He's also the author of five books, including Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist, and his latest book is The End of Wall Street, a book that profiles a lot of the major players in the financial crisis, including CEOs like John Thane and Jamie Dimon, as well as one guy, mutual fund manager Bob Rodriguez, who saw the crisis coming. Roger, welcome to Motley Fool Money. Chris, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, so a lot of books out there about the financial crisis. Uh, you're a financial reporter. What's a part of the story that you think hasn't gotten enough coverage to this point? You know, I think the focus, Chris, uh, up to now has been on uh, those week, that week or two in September and October of, uh, of uh, 2008 when Lehman went down 
and AIG went down or was bailed out, uh, were the various uh, government agencies right or wrong to bail them out or not bail them out, depending on which case? Uh, other books have focused on particular firms, such as um, Lehman or Bear Stearns. What I tried to do was to step back and uh, begin the story with um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the origin of this um, sort of moral hazard where they, the government allowed them to assume more and more responsibility and show the development of the credit bubble with people walking in and getting loans without having to say what they were earning and in many cases being encouraged by the bankers to lie and commit fraud and, and, then, and then doing it and, and to show so that you'd feel by the time you got to September of 08 that it wasn't just about a bank uh, failing or a bank and insurance firm failing. It was a whole ethos, a whole a way of doing business for, you know, perhaps a generation that was that was coming crashing down. It was, a, it was a bigger story. You did over 180 interviews for this book. Of all the people you interviewed, uh, who changed your thinking about the crisis the most? You know, Bob Rodriguez is uh, sort of my Greek chorus. Uh, he's the <laughs> fellow I, I lead with, and uh, the book opens in the prologue, and this Bob Rodriguez is actually fast asleep. That's, uh, that doesn't sound like an exciting way to, to start a book, but it is because he's, he has a dream. And he has a dream that um, Fannie and Fre- uh, Freddie uh, are going bankrupt and uh, that he's being sued because of it. And it's two and a half years before any of that will happen, but he's so prescient that he runs down to the office on a Sunday and decides to sell out every uh, bond he owns from Fannie and Freddie. And in, in hearing that and in getting to know him better, I realized that this was all foreseeable. In fact, it was foreseen that there was a, a long germinating story here. And when, um, you know, when Ben Bernanke was saying in 2007, as he did repeatedly, this is just a subprime crisis, it's, it's contained, or a subprime problem, uh, Rodriguez and, and others like him were saying, but Rodriguez said it specifically, yeah, it's just subprime, but who owns subprime? Citigroup owns it, Merrill Lynch owns it, all the biggest bank owns it. If it goes down, they're going down. And you know, through I would I would have to point to him first as someone who gave me a greater sense of what a long germinating uh, crisis this was. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'm talking with Roger Lowenstein. His new book is The End of Wall Street. Um, there are so many uh, CEOs that you profile in this book and, and do so with with such a, a clear and and in some ways a very blunt eye, which is just Thank you. great to read. Um, one of them, Chuck Prince, uh, CEO of Citigroup at the time. Um, we're going back to July 2007, uh, and this quote caught my eye. He said, when the music stops in terms of liquidity, things will be complicated. But as long as the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance. Uh, Greenspan, Bernanke, the Fed, they're all making that music. Why didn't they realize that the music was going to stop at some point? It's an absolutely naive comment, because any child who's six who's played musical chairs knows that when the music stops, there's never a seat for anybody. Okay? And you laugh, but, but that is a really uh, accurate analogy of what happens in markets. When the, market stops, uh, when the music stops in markets, everybody wants to sell, and suddenly there are no buyers. And, you know, for a man to have risen to become CEO of Citigroup and think that he could sell not a small position, but tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars of assets after everyone else had decided the music wasn't playing after, it, it is stunningly naive. And, you know, he, he, uh, he said uh, in Congress recently that uh, he wasn't aware of these assets on their books. Well, he was certainly aware when he made that comment that he was still doing the dance. Well, also talking to Congress this week uh, was Alan Greenspan. Uh, how much blame do you think 
he deserves for the crisis? I think Alan Greenspan deserves a lot. Um, when I talked about the ethos, I think the at the center of that ethos was uh, the ideology that markets always knew best, that there was no place for government uh, in, uh, in Wall Street. That, as Alan Greenspan said, uh, and I'm quoting, in uh, 1999, that uh, derivative transactions negotiated by private bankers do not need regulation from government. I think Greens, for Greenspan, this really was an ideology, almost a religion. He believed that markets were a sort of a pure construct, almost you know derived from nature, and, and, and uh, who are we to interfere in them? He said repeatedly that he didn't believe in, in um, stepping in the middle of uh, asset bubbles. And, um, you know, I think his excessively um, uh, permissive interest rate policy, uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, his refusal to regulate, which is also a, a job of the Fed, the banks who were dishing out these mortgages, um, you know, he, he bears a very great responsibility. We're talking to Roger Lowenstein. His new book is The End of Wall Street. What most surprised you when you were working on this book? You know, what surprised me, I, I have to confess that when I started out, uh, the working title was um, Six Days It Shook the World, and then um, uh, it turned into Two Weeks It Shook the World, and Six <laughs> Weeks, and so on, and finally I just junked that whole phraseology. And the, the more I went back, I, I was stunned at how early the system began crashing down. In fact, uh, my wife was reading a draft. She kept saying, you sure this is 2007, not 2008? Because... We were really in a financial freeze from about August of 2007. The subprime industry was collapsing. By the time we got to uh, 2008, when Lehman failed, but, but beforehand, the foreclosure rate had quadrupled. Delinquencies were up by a factor of three. Uh, jobs in Main Street America had fallen for eight straight months in a row. You know, this is all before Lehman. We, the, the cake was baked, and yet... Uh, Bernanke was still saying that the economy was going to continue to grow. This this crisis was the sort of the best advertised um, you know collapse we've ever had, and it, it stunned me to see um, you know how deep the pain was. Last week I interviewed Simon Johnson, uh, yeah. economist and author. Um, he said that what he thinks President Obama needs to do is take a page out of Teddy Roosevelt's playbook and break up the biggest banks and cap bank size. Do you agree with that? Would that help? No, I don't. I think, um, what are we afraid of? Are we afraid of big banks or are we afraid of leverage banks, leverage financial firms? If you look at this episode and if you look at prior episodes, the danger always comes when firms take on too much leverage. If you look at 1998 and long-term capital management, the hedge fund, that was not a, a, a big firm as banks go, but it was leveraged ultimately 100 to 1 and it you know, sent Wall Street practically over the edge. Uh, Bear Stearns was not a particularly big firm. Lehman was not a, a big firm, as Wall Street firms go. Certainly the um, financial products group of AIG, a little insurance, a little offshoot of an insurance company over in London, what was terrifying and terrorizing about those, all of those wasn't um, their size, per se. Uh, it was a degree of leverage. And I would, uh, you know, if I had to do one thing, that thing would be to limit leverage of financial firms. I'd, I'd much rather have a big, well-capitalized bank than a small, highly leveraged bank any day of the week. Okay, we're going to hold it right there. Coming up, we'll continue the conversation with best-selling author Roger Lowenstein and find out what lessons have been learned from the financial crisis. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm talking with Roger Lowenstein, author of The End of Wall Street. 
All right, help me look smarter to my friends. Let's say I'm out with my friends at a barbecue or out for a drink one night, and the conversation turns to the financial crisis and the problems on Wall Street. What's one observation I can make that will impress people? Well, one observation you could make is that Wall Street has an incredible inability to learn from its own mistakes. If we had had this conversation uh, 10 years ago, uh, after the collapse of LTCM, uh, when markets again panicked, uh, we would have said, gee, that firm was highly leveraged. It's uh, ridiculous that, uh, that uh, you know, we let it get so leveraged. And we would have said, gee, they relied on all these computer models that were based on the past history of market prices as if, the, as if they could predict how prices would behave in the future. What happened this time? Instead of one hedge fund, just about every firm on Wall Street piled up on debt, and just about every firm on Wall Street used these uh, models to predict what would happen to mortgage defaults, models that were entirely based on the past, a period that had nothing to do with the present period when mortgage standards were so much looser. Uh, so you could say, when are these guys going to learn? And, and you could say, you know what? Since these guys may never learn, we may need some government to learn for them or to regulate them. What do you think it is about bubbles that make people on Wall Street and people in business um, almost incapable of recognizing them, whether it's uh, dot-com bubbles uh, 10, 11 years ago, um, housing bubbles? Um, well, what know, is it about that? People are very impressionable. Uh, you know, when somebody gets an iPad and then the next person does, the third person wants to, not because they know whether it's any good or not, but because, you know, everybody's doing it. And that's, that's human nature. And, uh, but, but I guess I take issue with the idea that, that no one can recognize them, although that is the position of Alan Greenspan, it's the position of, of uh, Ben Bernanke. Uh, but I like to, to quote the economist Bob Barber, as I do in my book, that a child of four could have detected the dot-com phenomenon as a bubble. You know, when you have stocks that are trading, you know, the double and treble on their first day, and they don't have any earnings and don't have any prospect of earnings. There were plenty of people who were saying that that was a bubble. And when you have people walking into uh, uh, thrifts, as we did in 2003 and 2004, and getting mortgages without having to show that they actually had any income, and then got uh, mortgages on top of the first mortgages, so they had no, no capital at all involved, you know, you would have to say, gee, it seems like credit standards are getting kind of loose. That wasn't so hard to detect. With uh, an inability to learn, do you think there will be any lasting lessons from this crisis? I do, I do, because I think the pain, um, I think there'll be lasting effects. I think the pain was very great this time, and I, you know, if you think on a sort of a political metaphor of how our notions of our own security changed uh, after 9-1-1, I think, you know, prior to that, we'd, many Americans had figured that the era of wars and worrying about our physical safety was over, and regardless of what's happened since, None of us ever quite feel the same, I think, in an airport. By the same token, uh, you know, we grew up in the 90s and O's hearing that recessions or serious recessions were a thing of the past. The Fed had learned how to control them. We didn't really need regulation anymore. Uh, econometric models could predict the future. Bankers certainly didn't need uh, any guidance from regulators. I think that whole ethos uh, has passed. And I, and, I, and I think for this generation anyway, this, this bus will have been a scarring experience. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're talking with Roger Lowenstein about his new book, The End of Wall Street. All right, Roger, before we let you go, we've got to play a quick round of buy, sell, or hold. I'll spot you up with some ideas, concepts, products, that sort of thing, and you tell me if they were stocks, would you be buying, selling, or holding them? 
And let's start with buy, sell, or hold the legacy of Alan Greenspan. <laughs> uh, I would be selling the legacy of Alan Greenspan right now. Um, and, and is that in part because of his performance on Capitol Hill earlier this week? No, it has nothing to do with uh, you know his performance on Capitol Hill this week. It has to do with his performance as Fed Chairman uh, from 1987 to uh, uh, 2000 and early 2006. Fair enough. Buy, sell, or hold the future of Tim Geithner? I think a sell. Um, I think Geithner has been um, you know a very capable uh, administrator and public servant. Um, uh, I think at some point it will be useful to have. Um, a Treasury Secretary who's not tied down to all the decisions that the Geithner, Paulson, Bernanke team made in 2008, just a, a fresh pair of hands and a fresh pair of eyes. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I would think in the first round of cabinet shuffling or something um, that he could be going. You've written a book about Warren Buffett, Buffett, the making of an American capitalist. So buy, sell, or hold the likelihood of a Warren Buffett movie at some point in the future. Jeez. You know, I'm not asking you to cast it. Having just... <laughs> written about Warren Buffett, I can tell you that you know the he drives to work every day and he drives home. Uh, <laughs> but um, there'll be a Warren Buffett movie someday. There, there, there. I, I would buy that one. The Economist calls his writing storytelling journalism at its best. The new book is The End of Wall Street. It's available everywhere. Roger Lowenstein, thanks so much for being on Motley Fool Money. Chris, it was my pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Joining me in the studio once again are our trio of senior analysts, Seth Jason, James Early, and Shannon Zimmerman. But guys, it's time to bust out the full mailbag. Steve Broido, what do we got? Well, Scott has Palm on his mind. He writes, I was wondering about how you judge the likelihood of a company like Palm as a buyout candidate. Palm and HTC seem to fit together very well. HTC, the Taiwanese manufacturer of very slick smartphones, can make the great hardware for a good price, but pays companies like Google and Microsoft to use their software on the devices. Palms is probably the best software, but can't seem to sell the phones to stay profitable, and their current phone has hardware issues that I think HTC could really improve upon. Guys, what do you think? Palm is good buyout candidate? Uh, I, I think that it was probably a good acquisition candidate uh, maybe six months ago, but they've had very disappointing results lately. I think that has made them much less uh, attractive to potential buyers. Well, yeah, why buy now when you just let it die in the vine? And, yeah. yeah. And and I don't think, actually, that technically they have to pay to use Android. That's open source, yep. right? So, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, if they wanted the OS, and I don't think they do, you just let, it, you let the company die and you buy the OS from them. Steve, what else? Mike from Austin emailed us about our recent calling out of Best Buy for lumping in online sales with same-store sales. Mike writes, I wanted to remind you guys that Best Buy has an option on their website to pick up your purchases at your nearest Best Buy store, so you don't have to wait for it in the mail. I bring this up because it seems fair to give the physical store at least some credit for that purchase, since it's the store inventory that will take the hit for the purchase. Uh, yeah, I actually, th that's something I thought about before I brought it in. I don't think it makes any difference. In fact, I think it just confuses things even further. What you want to judge when you're hearing about same store sales is how much is are these individual bricks and mortar structures uh, on their own uh, adding to the revenue and the profit line and as long as you're mixing up these metrics you're not helping investors see it clearly so best buy just 
strain it out. These are very smart questions, though, and uh, I'm a little daunted, but people are actually paying that close attention to what we say. I'm, I'm flattered. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Motley Fool Money at fool.com. Keep those emails coming. Steve, one more. And Peter from Germany weighed in on our recent discussion of favorite cereals. My favorite cereal is definitely Captain Crunch. Yes. I first ate it when I was eight years old and was visiting my uncle who lived near Chicago. I still love it today, but as I live in Germany, I can't have it because it's not sold here. So every time I visit the States, I bring a suitcase full of that stuff and Pop-Tarts too. <laughs> oh. wow. America's finest. This is my favorite German right now. I love that. I just love the, the idea of a guy with a suitcase full of Captain Crunch. <laughs> I wonder if he's ever gotten in trouble with the customs people. What is wrong with Germany that there's no Captain Crunch on the shelves? Well, they're not necessarily... They regulate that stuff. It's not <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Germany doesn't have necessarily the highest reputation for, you know, fun. Yes, that's, that's right. If you have any comments on anything you've heard on the show or any questions, drop us an email at motleyfoolmoney at fool.com. All right, guys, in the time we have left, let's talk about the stocks that are on our radar. Shannon Zimmerman, we'll start with you. Uh, my company is a company I own, and uh, the Fool owns it through one of the services that I run here. It's FactSet, ticker's FDS. Great company. Uh, rock solid balance sheet. Looks a little pricey right now. Folks who are maybe invested in this should uh, keep a close eye on it. And what do they do? Uh, they are a provider of financial facts and figures widely used in the, the financial services industry. All right. James Early? Chris, I'm almost tempted by Yum Brands after hearing about that disgusting <laughs> sandwich you mentioned <laughs> I was, earlier. I, was gonna say I wouldn't want to use an iPad after eating that sandwich, by the way, but I'm going to go with Bemis. This is a former uh, income investor stock. My newsletter uh, it makes flexible packaging, 3.1% yield, good returns, good dividend raises, solid company. BMS is the ticker. Not like a moon rocket, but it's definitely stable. Seth Jason? I've got another one for James. Uh, Brookfield Infrastructure, uh, ticker is BIP. It's kind of a weird, boring company. They own pieces of infrastructure, electricity lines, hospitals are considered social infrastructure, pieces of ports. In other words, kind of cash generating stuff. They pay a pretty good yield. It's usually above 5% or so. The, the stock is trading right now at what I think is a reasonable, though not dirt cheap valuation. And I think they have a lot of price protection built into the business just because of the way it is, BIP. All right, Seth Jason, James Early, Shannon Zimmerman. Guys, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thanks to our special guest this week, Roger Lowenstein. His new book, The End of Wall Street, out in stores now. Go out and pick up a copy. And James, the offer still stands. Shannon and I will be hitting the road. We are going to find a KFC. We're going to find the new Double Down sandwich. And I will probably, Shannon, we'll probably stop by like a hospital and pick up some heart paddles. I think <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. If you missed any part of the show, you can find it at our website, <laughs> MotleyFoolMoney.com. You can also get a copy of our free report, The Motley Fool's Top Stock for 2010. All that and more at MotleyFoolMoney.com. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 